Notes on Chapter 4, The Interview. So at this point, Hester Prynne has already served her punishment. She now is back in jail. Um, at the very beginning, it says that she was in a state of nervous excitement that demanded constant watchfulness lest she should perpetrate violence on herself or do some half-frenzied mis frenzied mischief to the poor babe. So she's under um, surveillance because the... The people are afraid that she's either going to kill herself or hurt or kill the baby. The jailer's name is Master Brackett. He is at his wit's end for the uh, carrying on that Hester and the baby are um, doing. And then we have this introduction here. Um, there is a physician who is staying in the jail. And the physician, it just so happens... Um, is the same guy who was out in the crowd that Hester Prynne had noticed while she was standing on the scaffold. At the bottom of page 23 says his name was announced as Roger Chillingworth. And I want you to look at the use of the word announced. Doesn't say his name was Roger Chillingworth. He was um, Roger Chillingworth, anything like that. His name was announced. So, that's an interesting use was announced. The jailer um, <sighs> ushers her, him in. When Hester sees him, she becomes as still as death. And then the doctor, the physician, Roger Chillingworth, says, please leave me alone with Mr. Sprint. I will take care of her. And then Master Brackett, the jailer, says, well, then I will think that you are truly a man of skill because uh, I was uh, about to um, take in hand to drive Satan out of her with stripes. So he was ready to beat Hester just to um, shut her up. And so then um, at this bottom, he says, my old studies in alchemy and my sojourn for above a year past among a people well-versed in the kindly properties of simples, which means herbs, have made a better physician of me than many that claim the medical degree. So he actually does not have official medical training, but he is saying that his studies in alchemy, which is um, trying to turn base metals into gold, as well as his experience um, with the Indians learning how to use uh, herbs and, and different natural elements to heal people, makes him um, more fit than actual people who have earned a medical degree. Then he makes together um, a concoction to help soothe the baby. Hester um, says at the top of page 25, are you going to punish me for my um, sin on this baby? Are you going to hurt the baby? And then he says, you know, you're a foolish woman. Um, well, should ail me to harm this misbegotten and miserable babe. And then the medicine is potent for good. And were it my child, yea, mine own, as well as yours, I could do no better for it. So Hester hesitates. And then Roger Chillingworth ends up administering the medicine. And then um, we have this. He says, so the middle of page 25, with calm and intense scrutiny, he felt her pulse talking about Hester now, looked into her eyes, a gaze that made her heart shrink and shudder. We have the alliteration there of the sh sound. 
because so familiar and yet so strange and cold. And so his voice, his gaze, all of this is so familiar because Hester knew this man before she came to the colony. And then he tells her this, I know not Lethe nor Nepenthe. And if you look up L-E-T-H-E, you're going to find that this is a river in Hades whose water caused forgetfulness of the past and those who drank it. If you look up the word Nepenthe, N-E-P-E-N-T-H-E, then you will find out this is a drug or drink as having the power to bring forgetfulness of sorrow or trouble. So Roger Chillingworth says, I know nothing of um, Lethe nor Nepenthe. I cannot make you forget what you have done, but I have learned many new secrets in the wilderness. And here is one of him, them. And then he says that this was a recipe that he learned. An Indian taught him um, in repayment of some lessons that Roger Chillingworth had shown the Indian. Then we have this illusion that we're as old as Paracelsus, um, who was a Swiss physician and alchemist. And then he does this uh, kind of this gesture, this insult to Hester. He says, drink it. It may be less soothing than a sinless conscience that I cannot give to you. Um, and then he gives the cup to Hester and then Hester says at the bottom of page 25, I have thought of death, have wished for it, would even have prayed for it, were it fit that such as I should pray for anything, yet if death be in this cup. So she thinks that he is going to poison her. She says, I bid you think again. Here, I'm holding it. I'm about to drink it. See, it is even now up at my lips. Then on page 26, he says, drink you know, do you know me so little, Hester Prynne? He's kind of like taken aback, like, can you really think that I would try to kill you? He says, are my purposes want to be so shallow? And then he even goes on to say, even if I imagine a scheme of vengeance, what could I do better for my object than to let you live, than to give you medicines against all harm and peril of life, so that this burning shame, and he's referring to the scarlet letter, may still blaze upon your chest. And then he does this little creepy thing. He, as he's talking to her, he takes one of his long forefingers and he presses it on the scarlet letter on her chest. Um, he noticed her involuntary gesture and smiled. And this is always interesting about Roger Chillingworth. He either has a bitter smile or there's some kind of smile. And this is just kind of like this creepy thing that he does. And he says... Live, therefore, and bear about thy doom with thee in the eyes of men and women, in the eyes of him whom thou didst call thy husband, referring back to himself, in the eyes of yonder child. So Hester drinks from the cup, and then um, at the bottom of page 26, he says, Hester, I'm not going to ask you how you fell into this pit. And then he says, or rather, you ascended to the pedestal of infamy. He says, the reason is not far to find. It was my folly and your weakness. And then he goes through this part, bottom of page 26. I, a man of thought, the bookworm of great libraries, a man already in decay, 
having given my best years to feed the hungry dream of knowledge. What had I to do with youth and and beauty like your own? So he recognizes he was older, says that he was already in decay, and he had no business with her youth and beauty. And then he goes on and he describes himself. He says, I was misshapen from my birth hour. So he was born with a birth defect, and that's why his shoulders are lopsided. And he says, how could I delude myself with the idea that intellectual gifts, like my smartness, might veil physical deformity in a young girl's fantasy? Men call me wise. If sages were ever wise in their own behalf, I might have foreseen all of this. So he's saying, I should have known better than this. And then um, on page 27, second paragraph, starting with this, Hester responds to this and she says, thou knowest, uh, I was frank with you. I felt no love nor pretended to love you. Like I was straight up and told you, I will marry you, but I do not love you. And then he says, true. He says, it was my folly. I've said it. But up to that epoch of my life, so epoch, E-P-O-C-H, means a particular period of time. So he says, up to that period of my life, I had lived in vain. The world had been so cheerless. And then this is his rationalization for why he went ahead, even though he should have known better. He goes ahead and he marries this young, beautiful girl. He says, the world had been so cheerless. My heart was a habitation large enough for many guests but lonely and chill and without a household fire. I longed to kindle one. So he was lonely. He um, had no one in his life. He says, it seemed not so wild a dream, old as I was and somber as I was and misshapen as I was, that the simple bliss, which is scattered far and wide for all mankind to gather up, might yet be mine. And so, Hester, I drew you into my heart, into its innermost chamber, and sought to warm thee by the warmth which thy presence made there. And then Hester, at this point, she just mumbles. She's like, I've greatly wronged you. And then he says, we have wronged each other. And he says, mine was the first wrong when I betrayed thy budding youth. So um, describing youth as kind of like this, this flower. It's just in its infancy. It's just, you know, the spring about to burst forth. Um, He says, I betrayed thy budding youth into a false and unnatural relation with my decay. Therefore, as a man who has not thought and philosophized in vain, I seek no vengeance, plot no evils against you. Between you and me, Hester, the scale hangs fairly balanced. He feels guilty. Um, He should have known better because he was old. She was young. He should have known that this would have never worked out. And he says, but Hester... The man lives who has wronged us both. Who is he? He is referring to the person that Hester has had an affair with. Hester begs him, you know, ask me not. You shall never know. And then this is an interesting part. Bottom of 27. Never sayest thou, rejoined he with a smile of dark and self-relying intelligence. Once again, there's that smile. Never know him. Believe me, Hester. There are a few things whether in the outward world or to a certain depth in the invisible sphere of thought. Few things hidden from the man who devotes himself earnestly and unreservedly to the solution of a mystery. 
If you refer back to page 12, um, there's this one part, if I can find it, that talks about how, um, yes, okay, so if you go back to page 12, and about one, two, three, four, five, six lines down, yet those same blurred optics had a strange penetrating power when it was their owner's purpose to read the human soul. So that sentence on page 12 foreshadows what he says on the bottom of page 27 and the top of page 28, that there is nothing that can stop him once he puts his mind to it, to figuring this out. And he has this strange um, power to read other people's souls. And then he goes on to say this, they'll may cover up your secret from the prying crowd. You may conceal it. You may hide it too from the ministers and magistrates like you did today. Um, but as for me, I come to the inquest with other senses than they possess. I shall seek this man as I have sought truth in books, as I have sought gold in alchemy. There is a sympathy that will make me conscious of him. I shall see him tremble. I shall feel myself shudder suddenly and unawares sooner or later he must needs be mine so because he has intimately known hester because he has he is so connected to hester and to this whole situation he says i'm just going to know i'm going to have a sense like i'm going to just like figure this out and then um in the middle he once again says you're not going to tell me his name not the less he is mine so we have the repetition of that. And then um, he goes on to say, uh, do not fear for him. Do not think that I'm going to interfere with heaven's own method of punishment or to my own loss, betray him to the grip of human law. Do not imagine that I shall contrive aught against his life. So I'm not going to ruin his reputation. I'm not going to kill him. Um, and he says, if, as I judge, he be a man of fair repute, I suspect that he's going to be a man with a good reputation. He's probably going to be an important man in the community. And then Roger Chillingworth says, let him live. Let him hide himself in outward honor, if he may. Not the less, he shall be mine. So that repetition again, like he shall be mine. The sentence, let him hide himself in outward honor. This goes back to one of our reoccurring um motifs throughout this, that physical or outward appearances contrasting with what is in the interior of a person. So the outside does not match what is on the inside. And then Hester's like, oh, it seems like your acts are like mercy, but um, I interpret them as a terror. And then she asked, um, oh, so then Roger Chillingworth asked her to um, give uh, one secret. He says, thou that wast my wife, I would enjoin upon you, um, you have kept the secret of thy paramour, thy secret lover. Keep likewise mine. Do not tell a single soul that I am your husband. Don't act like you've ever known me. Nothing. And then um, 
he also makes this statement here. He says, I shall pitch my tent. I shall live here. For elsewhere, anywhere else in this world, I will be a wanderer and isolated from human interests. I have no family. I have no connections. I have nothing. But here, Hester, um, there's a woman, you, a man, the father of your child, and a child amongst whom and myself there exist the closest ligaments. No matter whether of love or hate, no matter whether of right or wrong, thou and thine, Hester Prynne, belong to me. My home is where you are and where he is, but you better not tell anyone who I truly am. And I want you to pay attention to that, no matter whether of love or hate, no matter whether of right or wrong, and to think about those emotions. If you truly love someone and you think about that person, and then if you truly hate someone and you think about that person, think of the amount of energy and effort that goes into loving someone and think about the amount of energy and effort that goes into hating someone. Now, if you could care less about a person, then like you don't put forth any energy to that. And so this um, is also something interesting then to think about. Is there, in terms of energy, a difference between love and hate? Um, Hester then asks, you know, why do you desire to stay here? She says, why not just say that you're my husband and cast me off? Just, you know, call me this horrible, terrible um, adulterer and disown me. And he gives her one reason. He says, you know, it could be that I don't want to be embarrassed or suffer the humiliation that comes from a husband having a faithless woman. He says it may be for other reasons, too. But no matter what, um, you're not going to know. And he says that um, let therefore thy husband be to the world as already dead. He says, don't recognize me by word, by sign, by look. And then he threatens her. He says, do not tell anyone the secret. Above all, do not tell the man that you had the affair with. Should you fail me in this, beware. His fame, so that means his reputation, his position, so if he is a prominent person, and his life will be in my hands. Beware. So he threatens her. He says, if you tell him that I am your husband, just know that I will destroy him. I'll ruin his reputation. He'll lose his job or whatever political position he's in and probably his life. And then Hester promises that she'll keep his secret. And then um, this last part, he does this like really kind of just creepy thing. He says, and now Mistress Prynne, said old Roger Chillingworth, as he was hereafter to be named, I leave thee alone alone with your infant and the scarlet letter. And then he asks her, because he's just kind of like trying to aggravate her. He says, how is it, Hester? Does um, your sentence require that you wear the scarlet letter when you sleep? Are you not afraid of nightmares and hideous dreams? So he's really just ta uh, taunting her there. He's just kind of like um, being just really snarky toward her. And then Hester says, why are you smiling? Okay, because he's doing that creepy smile again. And then she says, are you like the black man that haunts the forest around us? Are you evil? And she says, have you enticed me into a bond 
that will prove the ruin of my soul. She's asking him, have I made a deal with the devil that will destroy my soul? And he says this, not thy soul, he answered with another smile. No, not thine. So whose soul is he after? And the answer to that is he is out to destroy the soul of her secret lover, of the um, father of her child. And that is, oh, wait, I didn't answer this or talk about this one part. So another, or maybe I did and I can't remember. So um, a nickname for a physician is called a leech. And a leech is also a blood-sucking parasite. So for a parasite to live, it has got to have a host. If the host dies, then the parasite also um, dies. So also remember that because we're going to see that connection between Roger Chillingworth as a physician, also known as a leech, but also Roger Chillingworth who becomes a blood-sucking parasite like a leech. And that ends our notes and discussion over chapter four.